thankful for Todd's story and God changing lives. Todd typically attends the second service, so if you see him coming in as you're going out today, we tell him thanks for sharing his story, his vulnerability, his courage. And uh, for me, as I sit there, I just think, and God still changes people's lives. And he's changed ours, and that's why many of us are here today to celebrate. Some of you maybe have been um, asked to come, or maybe you're checking God out for whatever reason, and that's why you're here today. But let me tell you, God changes people's lives. That's why we exist as a church. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. And so to see a guy like Todd, where God took him from being without hope and without God and totally transforming his life, and now a guy surrender, growing, continually being changed and refined and shaped like all of us are. Um, God's still working on things, but has brought him into a relationship with him, and now he has hope and he has God and uh, now has a reason to celebrate this Christmas. And so we gather together um, as believers, and we celebrate Jesus Christ, not just his birth, but also his death, not just his death, but his resurrection, and not just his resurrection, but that he offers life to us. And so we gather together and and, and celebrate that. And we've got, uh, in the whole Christmas season, we're going to be celebrating this series we've called Tis the Season. We've got a Christmas Eve service that's coming up. You're going to receive an invitation for that on the way out. It's on Christmas Eve, so you can mark your calendars for that. And the times will be on the card, the invite card that you get on the way out. So there'll be a couple services this year, and you'll want to check that out. Maybe invite somebody to come, and perhaps they'll change that person's life like God's changed Todd's life or changed your life and uh, be thinking about those things. And also last week, just as an update, every fifth Sunday of the month, uh, there are a few Sundays, four or five a year that'll have five Sundays, and uh, every fifth Sunday we do what we call a dollar offering. That's a giving in addition to our normal tithes that we'll put in the boxes or do online. And just as people leave, instead of putting money in the box, they'll drop a dollar in a basket, and we give 100% of that money away to a different ministry that we partner with or believe in uh, for one reason or another. And uh, last week we had our dollar offering, and we gave the money to our church plant in Grand Rapids, Redemption Church, and they were using that money to buy a children's check-in system, and y'all gave over $1,000 to that. So I want to update you on that. Praise the Lord. That's great. So thank you. On behalf of Redemption Church, I'll just tell you, thank you for that. I know it'll be a blessing to the families and the, the leaders and the volunteers there at that church. And so thank you for your generosity in that. Also, um, as you're considering year-end giving, um, just so you know, some people use that to catch up on their tithes for the year and whatnot, and that's great. And you'll have an opportunity to do that here at our church, obviously. But um, you're also going to receive a letter this next week, an email that's coming out. It'll give you some unique opportunities because I know sometimes people want to use the end of the year to give above and beyond. And so if there's some things you want to see our church do in this next year, you'll see things like buying a baptismal. We always buy one from a different church whenever we do baptisms here. There'll be different things that'll be on the list that'll be sent out to you so you can be looking at that. And then today what we're going to do is we're going to begin our series called Tis the Season. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll jump into the scriptures and we'll get started talking about what we're going to talk about over the the next month here. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, that we get to gather together in your name. I praise you for what you did in Todd's life. Thank you for his boldness and his vulnerability and his courage to be able to share that with his church family and that we get to know him better. Um, a little bit, even just from hearing his story there. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd shape us and use each other in each other's lives. I pray as we open up the word this morning that you would change us and mold us, help us to think about you, um, maybe in different ways or new ways uh, than we have. God, will you speak to our hearts? Will you um, bring hearts alive that, that are lost? Will you please have your spirit speak to us? Will you meet with us? Will you allow your presence to be felt, known, seen, and experienced here this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it certainly is the Christmas season. If you just think about it on your calendar, obviously we've passed Thanksgiving, so it's automatically Christmas season. I know for some of you, you started, I saw somebody on Facebook that's in this service right now, so they started listening to Christmas music in October, and so I know that you get excited about that. Some of you have done your shopping, some of you knocked it all out on Black Friday, some of you did it in January earlier this year. So I know all that stuff happens, but it's the Christmas season now, so a common phrase that gets said is the title of our series, Tis the Season. 
Just think about when you hear that. You'll hear it even in conversations with people. So what are you doing this Christmas season? Well, I'm going to fill in the blanks, whatever they're going to do. Hang out with family. (laughs) Tis the season. I'm going to watch some Christmas music. Tis the season. I'm going to listen to some songs. We're going to sing songs like that we sang today, this morning. Tis the season. Drive around, look at Christmas lights. Tis the season. You've even heard it in songs. Tis the season to be jolly. Why are you saying a bunch of non-words? Isn't that interesting? Like that, we should write. We should all write Christmas songs. I bet you that guy makes like twenty-five cents every time someone sings that song. It doesn't have words in it. What a great song! But you know, you know, you've heard this statement before. Tis the season. So what does it mean? What is this season for? Begin to think about that for a moment. Is the season just for our traditions? Is the season just for watching certain movies, singing certain songs? Is the season to reflect on the birth of Jesus? Is the season for gathering together with family members? Is the season for what is this season for? And today we're going to talk about one of the things Pastor Jad mentioned that it's obviously for anticipation because so many people anticipate it. You think about this time of year, even people that aren't believers, even followers of Jesus, they get excited about this time of year. What is it? It doesn't matter whether you're a little kid, glassy-eyed and all excited about presents that are going to come one morning, or you're an adult and you're excited about your plans or parties or presents that are going to come or whatever it is that you get excited about. I was at Walmart the other day, which um, is an interesting experience oftentimes, but it was Thanksgiving Day, actually. And uh, after we were done with the, watching football and eating the meal and all that stuff, I went out into the craziness. I'm one of those weird people. I actually like to go shopping on Black Friday or even the night before. And I didn't think I was, but a couple years ago I started doing it to get presents, to get deals for our, our little kids. And now I don't care if Shannon says, we need some eggs. I'll go to the store. I just like going. I like going out into the craziness. I like the adventure of it. And so I'm at Walmart. It's like midnight. And let me tell you something. They don't care at that point. I'm not sure how much they care before that point, but they don't care at that point. Certainly not on Black Friday. They have boxes up, stuff's wrapped up in brown cardboard boxes. They don't care what it looks like because you're going to buy it anyways. And so it's just sitting out there on pallets, and I'm walking through the store, start talking to one of the workers there. She comes over to cash me out. I say to her, just as we're talking there at the end, Merry Christmas. Now, you never know what's going to happen at Walmart, first of all, okay? Then what she does at that moment, I say Merry Christmas, she pulls her hands up next to her head. She tucks her head down, and she starts to go like this. And I didn't know what was going to happen next, but then she went, Yes, Christmas! Now, I don't know what she has planned for Christmas, but she's pumped about it. There's an anticipation with Christmas. And so let me ask you this question. What do you anticipate this Christmas? What are you thinking about happening this Christmas? Maybe your gatherings together, maybe some traditions, maybe you'll make some cookies or go chop down a Christmas tree in the mountains or whatever it is that are your traditions. But what do you anticipate God doing this Christmas? Have you even thought about that yet? If not, I hope you do today. That's what we're going to talk about. What do you anticipate God doing in your life this Christmas? Because many of us, we don't anticipate God doing a lot. We're going to do our traditions, and we're going to open presents, and we're maybe going to go to Christmas Eve service, and we're going to go. It's easy to go through the motions of Christmas. What do you expect God to do this Christmas? What do you expect him to do in your life? What do you expect him to do through your life this Christmas? What do you anticipate from God? Because here's our big idea today. What you anticipate from God determines what you attempt for God. What you anticipate from God determines what you attempt for God. And the reality is that many Christians don't attempt much of anything for God. And maybe it's because we don't anticipate much from God. 
And today we're going to talk about tis the season for anticipation, because that anticipation then directly dictates how we live by faith. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. I invite you to join me there, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38 today. It's the birth announcement of Jesus, not the birth of Jesus, but when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to be with child. And what's happening here, you've got to understand the context of Luke. Luke tells us in the first five verses that he's writing this. He's a, a doctor, a physician, who sets out to write a historical account, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And he's writing it to a man named Theophilus, perhaps a royal guy, certainly a wealthy person. We don't know if he's a believer. And uh, Luke is writing this out so that he'll um, be strengthened in his faith. He knows some things about Jesus, we can tell that. Or if he's not a believer, and Luke's writing this out so that he'll come to faith as a Gentile. We believe that Theophilus is a non-Jew. And what we see with Luke is he writes this historical account, but we see the heart of a doctor. The first two stories he tells are birth accounts. The first one is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. The second one is the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Both these stories, you have to understand both in order to understand the other one. They have incredible similarities. The structure is identical. An angel comes, announces the birth. It's a miraculous birth. The baby's born, and then there's a celebration. Song gets sung by different people. But it's also a study in contrast. In the first story, the story of John the Baptist six months prior, the angel goes to a man named Zechariah, who's a priest, and he's in Jerusalem. They're past childbearing years. His wife is barren. She has not been able to have children. That's why it's a miraculous birth. In the second story, he goes to a nothing town named Nazareth to a young woman, a virgin. So instead of a man, a woman, instead of old, young, instead of a priest, a nobody. And instead of a barren woman, she's a virgin. So there's another miraculous birth. And after both, there's a celebration that takes place. One is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. The other one is just great because he defines greatness. That's Jesus. And in both stories, what takes place is that God intervenes in the routine of the life of an individual, which is oftentimes what he does. So as you think about what's going to happen and what you anticipate this Christmas, wouldn't it be easy to go through the motions and do all your things and miss God speaking to you, miss what God has for you, but maybe he wants to intervene in the midst of your routine and do something different and maybe change your anticipation, maybe change your expectations like he does for Elizabeth, like he does for Mary. And we're going to pick up in verse 26, after the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist is the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Verse 26, it says this. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month since the angel has announced this to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. He's pointing this out. He's making it clear. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. There's a promise. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. This is before ultrasounds. And you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Savior of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, here's how it will happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, the set-apart one, the anointed one for God's unique purposes, the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she is said to be barren, is in her sixth month. 
giving a sign. He didn't need to give a sign. She didn't request a sign, but he's giving a sign for nothing is impossible with God. That's the real explanation. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And that's the end of that encounter. Then the angel left. Here we read this encounter, which is very familiar. If you've gone to church during the Christmas season, you've perhaps heard this story before, this announcement that takes place. But try and imagine that you're a first century Jew. What we have here is the culmination of thousands and thousands of years of anticipation. They've been waiting for this ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, when they sin and they blow it for all of mankind and they're kicked out of the garden, then God speaks and he begins to promise this coming son, the seed of a woman. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is the first glimpse of Jesus Christ we get in the promise of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God's speaking to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, speaking of Jesus, will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. We have the battle, the conflict that will take place. And then you go through the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament actually points us to Christ. You've got Noah, a picture of salvation. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ will, the ultimate deliverance that he will give us through the cross. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one that was talked about in Genesis chapter? That's what everybody's asking throughout the Bible. Does he? Nobody's going to come in this line. Abraham is going to come in the line of Isaac. He's going to come in the line of Jacob. And then later at David, you get hundreds of years later, you get David in 2 Samuel 7. He's going to be in the line of David. He's going to rule forever. The very things that are talked about in this passage of Scripture, you get to Isaiah and the prophets, and they predict exact details of Jesus' life hundreds of years before Jesus walks the earth. Isaiah chapter 7, he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. And so all these things are pointing to, it's all this anticipation that's been built up, but certainly Mary didn't expect it to happen in her life that day. See, they're waiting. All the Jews are waiting for this to happen. But then all of a sudden it happens in Mary's life. A new set of expectations, which is then going to change what she then attempts for God. Because now she says, may it be to me as you have said, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I was planning, I had one set of plans for my life. You intervened in my routine. And now I've got another set of expectations. And so I'll do whatever you want. I'll be the mother of Jesus. I'll be the mother of the savior of the world, regardless of what that means for me. She's got new anticipation. See, what we anticipate determines what we attempt. What we anticipate from God as followers of Jesus determines what we attempt for God. And just think about how you know that truth. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you're not a Christian, you take the God pieces out of it, we know that the anticipation we have in our life determines the behaviors that we make, the things that we do. If we have bad anticipations, expect something bad to happen, we prepare. We plan for the bad thing, so it changes our behavior. If we have good expectations, we prepare. We plan for the good thing. Just think about if, um, you know, it's perhaps going to be 70 degrees today, maybe it'll be rainy and 40. I don't know what's going to happen. But say it's, the weather's really nice today, but then tonight you're watching the news, local news, and the guy comes on and he says, it's going to be Snowmageddon too. Remember Snowmageddon last year? Glenwood Avenue, we had Stay Puff. Yeah, that's right. Our stories get bigger after a while, and so... Stay Puff Marshmallow Man shows up on Glenwood Avenue. If you didn't know that, that's, it happened. So there's the picture, photo evidence. But say the news guy says that tonight. Say he says it's going to be as bad as it was last year. It's all going to come down. But guess what? Your anticipation's now changed. So your behavior's going to change. You're going to go buy all the bread and milk at the store or whatever. You're not going to go do anything tomorrow. Whatever it is that's going to happen in your life, it's going to be different than before you had those expectations. 
if you have good expectations, something great happens in your family, say you find out that you're like Mary or like Elizabeth, you're finding out you're going to have a baby. So those of you who've had children, you know, you find out you're having a baby, it changes everything. You start to plan. Maybe that means painting a nursery, or buying a bed, or whatever. It is. But it also changes you, because now you're going to be responsible for another human being. It changes everything about us. What we anticipate determines what we attempt. It changes how we live. And you think about that in a faith realm. If we anticipate the second coming of Christ, it changes how we live. If we just go through our routine and act as if, well, certainly it didn't happen yesterday. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It certainly, is, then it changes nothing. If we anticipate that God might show up and ask us to do something by faith, he's never asked anyone else to ever do. It's got an eager expectation for God to speak to us. It changes what we attempt for him. But many of us live pretty ho-hum Christian lives, if we're honest. We don't like to say that. We wouldn't want to admit it, but we just kind of expect, well, this is what happened yesterday. Here's what's happened today. Probably the same type of thing is going to happen tomorrow. And we don't expect much from God, and we don't attempt much from God. But if you look through the Bible, what you see is that people who live by faith, it was their anticipation for what God was going to do that changed the way they lived their lives. Think about Moses. He's standing at the Red Sea. He's got Egyptians who's held his people in oppression for hundreds of years, barreling down on him. What makes him think that he's going to be able to cross the Red Sea? Why would he hold his staff over the Red Sea? Why would he do any of that stuff? It's because God's promised, I'm going to deliver my people and I'm going to use you to do it. So what he anticipates God doing, because of what God promised, changes what he attempts for God as he holds his staff up over the water and the water's part. Look at Noah. Why does Noah build a boat? And just want to take up a new hobby. Yachting didn't seem to be popular at that time. It wasn't raining outside. Because God promised judgment. He was coming. And so Noah got ready. What he anticipated changed what he attempted. Think about Peter. When Peter's in that boat in the storm with 11 other disciples, and Jesus comes walking up on water, why is it that Peter gets out of the boat? Peter says, if that's you, tell me to come. He says, come. He anticipates being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And because of what he anticipates, it changes what he attempts. And he does something the other 11 guys don't do. In fact, that no one's ever done. And he steps out by faith. And you go through Hebrews chapter 11. You just read through Hebrews chapter 11. Why did all of those people, any of them, pick a name? Hebrews chapter 11 highlights all these great heroes of the faith. Why did they do the things they did? It's because what they anticipated from God. So then they attempted something for God. So William Carey once said this statement. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. William Carey, some people say, is the greatest missionary since the apostles. He's a guy who decided to leave in 1759, England, to go to India to share the gospel. Poor guy, grammar school education, ended up translating the Bible into dozens and dozens of languages. He served there for 41 years, died there. Never came back to England. And now people call him the the father of modern-day missions. Why? The Great Commission. Go. Share the gospel. I'll be with you. Make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He anticipated that God would actually do that work and transform people's lives, so he attempted something for God. Even though he had a... There was a mentor pastor of his, a well-known guy, who told him when he stood up to start sharing this idea about here we are, we've got the gospel, we've got all these privileges, we've got all this stuff. We need to go to the heathen. We need to go to the pagan who's never heard this stuff. I'm going to go to India. There's a ton of people there. And they've never heard this stuff. A bunch of Buddhists. We've got to go tell them. And the guy said to him, Carrie, sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it his own way. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He didn't expect much from God. So he didn't attempt anything for God. 
then Carrie says, expect great things. And then the, what makes that such a powerful statement is he does it. So then attempt great things. That's what we see happen in the life of Mary. Look at this passage. She probably doesn't expect much of her life. It gets described at the beginning of this passage. She's in the, or it's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and then God sends an angel. Now, we just read past that because we know the Christmas stories. Let me point out something to you. Before what happened with Elizabeth six months prior, an angel hasn't been sent, and God hasn't revealed himself to his people in 400 years. So this isn't normal. It's been 400 years, and so first of all, what, an angel? This is happening again? It just happened six months ago. Now, Mary doesn't know that happened. They don't have TV. They're not text messaging each other. She doesn't realize it's taking place. An angel shows up, and where does the angel go? And God's real clear about this. To Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Both those things could be underlined in your Bible because Nazareth, I've heard some people say it's a, it's a nothing town. It's, no, it's nothing at all. It's 100 miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where you go if you want spiritual blessing. Jews in Jerusalem look down on any Jew that would perhaps even attempt to live in Nazareth because you forfeited spiritual blessing already. The very fact that you would go there, it's one of the worst places that you could live was Nazareth. Small town probably had maybe 1,600, perhaps 2,000 people living in the town as a whole. It was one of the worst places you could live in this area, which I understand, by the way. My hometown is Flint, Michigan. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not. Uh, you know, Raleigh oftentimes is voted, you know, top five places to live for a family, top five places to live for education, top five places to live and fill in the blank, like for all these different things. Flint was voted at one time the worst place to live in America. Per capita had the most murders, uh, unemployment was terrible, a hotbed for immorality, all kinds of bad stuff taking place there. So I'm feeling you, Mary. Like, I get it. She lives in Nazareth, which is considered a hotbed for immorality. It was a bad place to live. Mostly poor people living there. We know that Mary's poor and Joseph because of an offering that they give later at the temple. They're poor person. They're poor people. But she has some expectations in her life. The text points out to us in verse 27. She's pledged to be married to a man. She's engaged. It's what the, the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, what they call betrothal. And so different than our engagement process, not as romantic. Some guy wouldn't get down on his knee and say sweet words to a woman. Instead, there'd be a bridal price that'd be worked out between uh, the potential groom and the father. And the bride had little to nothing to do with any say in whether this was going to happen or not. And what would then happen is they would get engaged once the bridal price was agreed. And when being engaged was like being married, except for they couldn't consummate the marriage. They didn't have a sexual union. What was supposed to happen over the next year is that Mary would then prove her purity, her faithfulness to her future husband over that year's time frame, and then the husband would prepare a home for them. And so that's what's supposed to be taking place right now. And what she anticipates probably as a young girl, typical age for betrothal was 13. So we believe that Mary was somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. She lives in Nazareth, poor town. She is poor. She's anticipating, expecting to get married to Joseph, her husband. She probably will never travel more than a few miles from her home. She'll probably have a few children and then she'll probably die. That will be her life like many before her, like many that have come after her. Kent Hughes described Mary one time, and he says that she's a nobody in the middle of nowhere in a nothing town. That's where God's going. This text should scream out to us, God can use you too. Because he picks a, a priest's wife in the first passage, and you think about who he could have picked for the birth of the Savior. He could have picked a priest's wife. He could have picked a king's daughter. He could have picked anybody that he wanted but he chooses this nobody in the middle of nowhere in a nothing town. It's like I was watching uh, the Nativity movie with my family this week. 
I don't know if you've seen that movie. I, I recommend watching it this Christmas season just to be thinking, kind of place yourself in the story and be thinking about what it would be like. And I was talking to one of my daughters in afterwards, and she said, what was your favorite part of the movie? Now, the movie goes all the way from this scene, basically, through uh, Jesus being born and a situation where there's animals and just when you start watching it, you're like, wow, it was really it was probably similar to this, like this. And you got Joseph and Mary and, and the baby, and there's the, the whole journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, which would be over 100 miles. And think about doing that, being pregnant, it's terrible. And so my daughter said, what was your favorite part of the movie? And my favorite part of the movie was the, when the shepherd showed up at the birth scene. And what happened just before that, Joseph tells us that shepherds live their lives mostly alone, which is true. Um, he doesn't give us all the details. What ends up happening, what's real with shepherds, is that shepherds are actually considered unclean. Um, they lived out here with these animals close to the temple, with the animals that would be sacrificed at the temple. But because they were with the animals that would be sacrificed at the temple, they were considered unclean, which meant they couldn't go to the temple. That's how it worked. And um, they were outcasts. And they did live their lives alone. But God appears to them, so they bring you good news, great joy, right? Maybe if you know that verse, Charlie Brown Christmas, if you don't. And they show up to find the baby that was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And when they get there, there's this scene where a shepherd comes up and he reaches out to touch Jesus and then he pulls his hand back like he's not worthy. And then I love the, the producers of the movie had Mary say, no, he's a gift for all mankind. He's for everybody. Now, we don't know if that really happened, but we do know that that's really true. Because God's word tells us in Luke chapter 2 that when the angels come to the shepherds, the outcasts, he says to them, do not be afraid. Common statement by angels, by the way. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for everyone. This is good news for all people. And what is the good news? It's Jesus Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Messiah, the anticipated one, the anointed one, the holy one, the one that's going to come and take away and deal with all of our sins. And he's for all people. And so if you are here today and you think to yourself, not me, I mean, maybe God would use a William Carey. Maybe he would use a Peter. Maybe he would use a Moses. Maybe he'd use a Noah. Maybe he'd use somebody like that, but not me. This passage screams out to you, (laughs) that's how God works. He would use you. And remember the context. Context is key. Who is Luke writing to here? Luke's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to a rich guy, Gentile, rich guy. I don't know if you know many successful people, many people that have made it in their industry or whatever. Um, Those that I've met, many of them struggle with needing to achieve something, needing to accomplish something, needing to prove their worth. What is Luke pointing out here to a guy like that? (laughs) It's not on you, Theophilus. It's God's grace. His grace. That's what we see here with Mary. Look at what the angel says to Mary. Greetings. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, verse 28, which some people um, will take and translate, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's a mistranslation of this passage, and it's trying to make Mary into the big deal here, which totally messes this whole thing up. Roman Catholics do this, it's wrong. Uh, it's totally off. It's one of the ways that they're very off. This is Hail Mary. Really what this word greetings is translated as, it's a common greeting. Hello? Hi. Hey, Mary. Angel over here. He's intentionally being casual. Comes into her home. Greetings, you who are highly favored, that is greatly graced, who have been given much grace. And then a promise, the Lord is with you. We see that promise throughout the scriptures. Mary was greatly troubled. Do you think? She's 13 years old. She's certainly not expecting this. I don't know what she had planned for a day. Not this. 
But it doesn't say that she's troubled because an angel's speaking to her. That would bother me. It doesn't say she's troubled because this is a man. Now, if you read commentaries on this passage, they'll spend a bunch of time talking about it. It's because a man was greeting her, and men didn't talk to women like this, and so this wasn't supposed to happen, but the text doesn't say that. The next part of the text tells us why. Mary was greatly troubled, not because he was a man, not because he was an angel, but at his words, which, let me point out to you, he hasn't said anything about a baby being born at this point. She doesn't know she's going to be pregnant, much less pregnant with the Savior of the world. (laughs) She's troubled because he said, you are greatly graced. You are highly favored. What we see here is Mary, really an acknowledgement of who, me? I'm a sinner. I need a savior, just like everybody else needs a savior. I'm not a dispenser of grace. I'm not one that gives grace. I'm in one in need of grace. She wondered at his greeting what it might be, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You've received grace from God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You're going to have a baby. Okay, maybe someday. That's great. And give birth and he's going to be a boy. Oh, wow. I get to know the gender. Most people don't know that. And you'll give him the name Jesus. Okay? Whatever the angel said. And he will be great. And I read that and I think, well, every parent thinks their child is great, don't they? Have you met any new parents before? Go to somebody that has a baby out in the lobby. Perhaps somebody that's coming in the second service, they won't hear me say this. Be like, wow, look at your baby. Your baby's great, isn't he? Or isn't she? And they'll tell you how amazing they are. They'll, tell, they'll make stuff up about how he's like the next Einstein. Like just, he's walking. I mean, he's not walking right now. I know he's only two months old. But he walks at home and he talks. And like he can, grab, he can use his thumb. And like the baby will smile at you. And they'll say, like, he's going to be a social genius. And you're thinking, or he's got gas. Like... Yeah, he's a baby. That's just what babies do. Everybody thinks their kid is great. But what's unique about Jesus is that greatness doesn't define him. His life will define what greatness is. He will be great. He will redefine greatness, in fact. There's a contrast here between what was described of John the Baptist earlier when he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus isn't great in the sight of the Lord. He is the Lord. And he just will be great. And he'll be called the son of the most high. Now you've got Mary's attention, right? Because we're talking divine, son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've been anticipating this for hundreds of years. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I read that this week. I've preached this passage before. You know how you read a passage and then sometimes something strikes you and you read it again and something different strikes you. This promise that he will reign forever means that nothing will stop his reign. Not Roman rejection, not Jewish rejection, not a crucifixion, not a tomb. And so then think about Mary. I wonder if Mary, when she was watching her son be crucified, later, fast-forwarding the story, if she remembered these words from the angel, so this isn't going to stop him? And when he gets put in the tomb, that's not going to stop him? He's dead. And when he comes back, so then nothing's going to stop him. We read the book of Acts. She was there with the disciples in the, in the upper room, anticipating Jesus' return, praying for the Holy Spirit to come. I wonder if she went back to these words, and his reign will be forever. It will never end. And the thing that blows me away about Mary is that she doesn't doubt this. Unlike Zechariah in the passage before, who's an example of poor faith, and that's why the angel says that he's going to be mute. He doesn't speak until after his son is born, because he doubted. Mary doesn't doubt. And you're trying to think, what would you do if an angel appeared to you today and told you news like this? I think if it were me, I'd probably be thinking, who put you up to this? Like, what, Pastor Jed put those wings on your back? Like, what is that? 
Like, are we on a new reality TV show? Like, what's happening here? This, isn't, this can't even really be happening, would be what I would be thinking. And that's not what Mary's saying. That's not what she's thinking. Look at where she's at. It says, how will this be? Not that she doubts that the Savior's going to be born. It's been anticipated for thousands of years. Not that she doubts that she is going to be able to do this. But how will it happen? What you're talking about is impossible. There's, there's no way because I've never been with a man. No, she didn't have all the education that we have, but she knew basic biology, and she knew that she hadn't done what needs to be done in order to become pregnant. And she's just saying, how, how can this be? Because I, I've never been with someone. So are you going to wait until later after Joseph and I get married, and you're just kind of giving me this uh, foreshadowing what's happening here? And the angel says, no, no, no. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. If you have a hard time believing that a virgin could give birth, do you believe in creation? God created out of nothing. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is hovering over the waters. He creates man out of the dust. He creates the world out of nothing. Same Holy Spirit that gives you new life when you're born again, that you're without hope and without God, like we saw with Todd's story, and he brings you into new life. He makes you a new creation. The old goes away. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to do this, is what the angel's telling Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's nothing sexual taking place here. And here's why. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God's going to put flesh on and go into your womb. He's going to be fully God, and he's also going to be full humanity. And then I'll give you a sign. You didn't ask for a sign. Zechariah asked for a sign. You didn't ask for one, but even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she was said to be barren. She's well past childbearing years. She's in her sixth month of pregnancy. And here's the real answer, Mary. For nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? Because the Bible screams to us that God does the impossible. But do you believe that it's true? And does he do it today? Because he creates out of nothing. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Do you believe that he can create out of nothing? You look at what happens with that. Moses parting the waters. They crossed on dry ground. Have you read that story in Exodus? Like not only do the waters part, but they don't walk across on mud. (laughs) They crossed on dry ground, it says. He holds the sun still at one point in the Bible. He raises people from the dead. He gives sight to blind eyes. He sets the oppressed free repeatedly. Oppressed from addiction, oppressed from social oppression, oppressed from slavery. He's continually setting the oppressed free. Those are miracles. He's doing the impossible. And we see him do it all throughout the Bible. And we see him do it today. Did you see Todd's story? Think about your own conversion. Those of you who know Jesus, that's a miracle. I was going through some notes from a couple years ago as I was preparing this message, and I was reading a story that I'd actually forgotten about, about a guy who came to Christ through uh, Southbridge, some people that were ministering from Southbridge. And uh, when he came to Christ, he turned in his crack pipe. He'll lay my life down before Christ, and this is what's standing between me and him. He puts his crack pipe down. That's a miracle. He reconciles marriages. That's a miracle. He gives people the grace to stay in difficult circumstances. That is a miracle. So God does the impossible. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you believe that he still does the impossible? Because if you do, shouldn't that change what you anticipate God doing? Which then would change what we attempt for him doing. Now let me be honest with you. I'm not preaching at you today. I'm preaching with you in the sense of I need to hear this. Because I'm thinking about my own life this week. And I believe that God can do the impossible. And I remember in my journey, I've seen him do stuff. He's answered prayer in ways that only he can answer prayer. He's provided for me in ways that had to be him providing. I've seen him heal people. I've seen him deliver people. I've seen him do amazing stuff. I know that he does the impossible. But 
what happens in my life. I was going to be living my life, doing my routine, even ministry routine, even preparing messages, um, planning Christmas Eve services, uh, events that are going to take place, how to share vision at our church, like thinking through all that kind of stuff and get in the routine and not ask God, what do you want to do? What do you want to change? How do you, what results are you going to bring? That you could, you're the only one that can do it. The impossible. And so then they don't anticipate much. You just kind of go through the routine, just kind of live the Christian life and... But what does God want to do this Christmas? What does he want to do through our church? What does he want to do in your life? What does he want to do in my life? What does he want to do in us? What does he want to do through us? Because what we anticipate will determine what we attempt. And if he wants to do something impossible, then the question becomes, are you ready for it? Because Mary, there's no way she could have anticipated what was going to happen in this passage. But what we see is she was ready. Look at what she says next. The angel says, God does the impossible. Nothing's impossible for him. I am the Lord's servant. We could say as New Testament believers, I'm his slave. I've been bought at a price. I am not my own. And then she says, may it be to me, as you have said, whatever, whatever you write the story, God, whatever you say, whatever you do, I'm, just, I'm here, I'm willing. And think about what this statement really means for Mary. Because she doesn't know what's going to happen next. She doesn't realize all the implications of what it's going to be like to be the mother of Jesus. She hasn't yet stood before the really old guy, Simeon, and they're dedicating the child. And he tells her, this son is going to cause the rise and fall of many and piercing of your own soul. She doesn't know what it's like to tell Joseph yet. No, really, an angel talked to me. (laughs) Okay. We know in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph didn't believe her. What was it like for her to tell her father? What was it like to be accused of adultery, which would be excommunication from her, communica- from her community at that point? We know that she's thought to be an adulteress. We see Jesus accused of it in John chapter 8. You were, what are you, who are you? You were born in fornication, his enemies say to him. So she doesn't know all of what it's going to entail, but she's got to know there's a cost. And she just says, whatever you, not my will, but yours. May it be to me as you have said. I'll do whatever you want. Why? Because I belong to you. It's not my life. What is it? She's not living life for this world. She's living life for God. And what you see is that people that anticipate great things from God and attempt great things from God, that's how they live their lives. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It talks through Hebrews chapter 11. You get through the first half of it and it says, here's the thing. These people weren't living for this world. They were living for another world, a heavenly world. And then it ends up saying that a lot of them, bad stuff happened in their life. For a lot of people that decide to live by faith, things get, it doesn't mean that everything gets easier and everything gets better here in this world, but that's okay because we're not living for this world. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 38 says, the world is not worthy of those people. So they attempted great things for God. What about you? Are you ready? What do you anticipate God doing? We talk about William Carey. Carey, it was, he has an amazing ministry. Translates the Bible into dozens of languages, the father of modern day missions, all that's true. But if you read his biography, it was a tough life. He didn't see his first convert for seven years. What do you anticipate God doing in your life? Some of you have been praying for your one. We talk about having our one at Southbridge. Some of you have been praying for your one for two years or three years now, and they haven't come to Christ, and so you, you start to get discouraged, and you wonder if it's going to happen. And Some of you have been praying for a spouse for a long time to come to Christ, and you just wonder, is it ever going to happen? And Does God do the impossible or not? Is it going to happen this year? I don't know. What you anticipate, though, is going to determine what you attempt for him. 
Carry it was seven years before he gives his life up. He goes to try and tell the heathen, and he just assumed, like, they've never heard this. I'm going to tell them they're going to come to Christ. And seven years, no one comes to Christ. He buries two wives, three children. One of his wives goes insane. He battles depression, tons of illnesses, but he stays there for 41 years. He was asked, How do you do it? Do you know what he said? Got a promise from God. And lo, I will be with you always. How does Mary do this? Well, I want to challenge you. Go back. She has one promise here. Verse 28. You are greatly graced, Mary. The Lord is with you. So in other words, he's going to do it. It's not on me. I'll do whatever he wants. Wherever he places me. Whatever circumstances. If that means losing my job right before Christmas, that's fine. I'll do whatever the Lord's will is. If that means some kind of great new blessing in my life, I'll fine. Whatever God wants, that's all I'm going to do it. May it be to me as you said. You write the story, God. I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for whatever he might do? And what might he want to do? Maybe he wants to save one of your kids. Maybe there'll be a great difficulty that will refine your faith and sharpen you. I don't know. Are you ready? For some of you, you need to be ready for a new relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to trust Jesus to be your Savior. Some of you need to be ready to take a new step of faith. And God has. He's placing. He's preparing you. He's been putting you in this spot. And he's going to show up. And he's going to do something this Christmas. He's going to speak to your heart. Some of you, maybe you've gotten in the routine. Maybe even the routine of ministry. But it's become routine. And it's time for God to intervene. And move you out of your comfort zone. And to trust him to do the impossible. Trust him to some more results. Trust him to do something only he can do. What do you anticipate God doing? I have no idea what that woman at Walmart was thinking when she started dancing around. Yes, it's Christmas! She was excited though. And what does God want to do in your life? Do you expect him to do anything? And if so, are you ready? Because what you anticipate will determine what you attempt. We're going to conclude today. I want to give you an opportunity to pray. Ask God to speak to your heart. Ask Him to speak specifically into your life, into your circumstances, into your relationships, into your work, into your ministry. Say, God, what do you want to do? And then ask yourself, as you reflect on your own heart, can you say like Mary, may it be to me as you have said, whatever you want to do, I'm willing, because I'm your servant. I'll begin us in prayer, and we'll give you a couple moments to pray.